pray. We thank you, Lord, that we can say this with confidence that your goodness will lead us home, that you are the good shepherd, that you watch over your flock, that you care for us, and you have brought us now after these songs of faith and hope to consider your word together as the body of Christ. We pray in behalf of those who know not Jesus that are here among us and pray that you would open their eyes to the light of the gospel of his saving grace and kindness to us in forgiving sin and drawing into himself and into relationship with you those who trust him. But for those of us who walk with you, who know you, we thank you for this opportunity to feed upon your word and I pray that you would bring about change and growth and good through our time together in the Word. Open this truth to us by the teaching of your Spirit. Bring conviction and encouragement. Motivate us to walk with you in greater fullness and faithfulness. And Lord, we pray that in this time together that we would be sanctified by this Word. Pour it over us. Minister your grace to us through it, we pray. Bless this time together through Christ, we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. I'm two for two. <laughs> we got teamwork going here. <clears throat> Where do you stand today? Figuratively speaking, we have to take a multiplicity of stands in this world, stands that distinguish us from some people and that position us with other people. Let's take, for instance, a pro soccer match, football match in other parts of the world. But you see their fans wearing their team's colors in a lot of different forms. But saying there, this is our team, and as is uh, the beauty of some such teams, the songs that they sing with full throat for their team while the game is going on. They stand proudly and they stand loyally with their team. It gets more serious when we move to politics where people take their stand with a certain party. Maybe it's a politician or a candidate that they are supporting for office and they're very adamant that this individual must gain this office, or they take an ardent stand for a policy or a law. And it gets yet even more serious when nations take hostile stands against one another and take up arms, forming alliances, going to war. Our gathering here today constitutes another type of stand. It is a stand that we take as the followers of Jesus Christ. Our stand is less demonstrative than that of fans at a World Cup match, for it is week after week after week, year after year. And it's not bloody or death-defying like armed combat, although for some, in some situations, it does lead to death. But in another sense, our stand here today is the most significant stand that any human being can make. 
the most significant stand that we can take in this world because this gathering is in the name of the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ and it carries eternal consequences. We struggle to see this at times as we come in and you're working with the kids to get them in the door on time. You're tired from last night. You're thinking about what's coming. There's troubles that weigh on your heart today. So we sometimes struggle to see this But this gathering is in the name of Christ and it has eternal consequences. And we know this by faith as his followers. It is a gathering before the sovereign God of the universe who determines not merely wins and losses on the pitch or victories and defeats in battle. We gather today standing with the Lord of Lords whose judgment we know will determine our destinies. And I pray for you as I pray for my own soul, that we stand steadfastly loyal to Christ. This is our battle. This is the stand we must take. And it is such a spirit, I think, that moves King David in his prayer of petition, this song of petition to God that we find in Psalm 26. As we drink in the message of this psalm, let me begin by drawing attention to three stage props to the theater of Psalm 26. If I could say it that way, if David is standing here before us and reciting this psalm, this prayer, speaking it out, we could just picture, in a sense, kind of stage props around him. They don't make the message themselves, but they're the, they provide the environment. The first prop is divine judgment. The sense of God as judge for, before whom we will stand. The second prop is godless people. God is judge. There are people who are opposed to him. And the third prop is corporate worship. There are others who worship him, and David wants to stand with these people. Again, like a play, these stage props do not tell the story as such, but they serve as the backdrop as David steps out onto the stage, lifting his voice in earnest prayer to God. This is the stuff he sees around him, the very important pieces of his life and of ours. He begins by expressing, first of all, his solid stand before God. Verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 26. This psalm of David starts, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. We do not know the specifics, the circumstances that David was facing. It seems fair to say, at least on some level, that he was facing accusations from opponents. And there were a lot of moments in his life uh, where this might have then been the context. There were many who did oppose him on many different levels. But more importantly for us here is to see that David throws himself open to God's scrutiny. I mean, think about that for a moment. Test me, prove me, try me. See what you see. This Hebrew word translated here, vindicate, I think is a good translation, but it's a bit of an interpretation because it's the word we commonly translate judge. He says, judge me. Serve as judge looking into my heart. 
He pleads with God to judge his case. I ask you to weigh the evidence against me, to acquit me of wrongdoing, to declare me righteous in your sight. And what's his support as he speaks this out before God, the divine judge? It is, I walk before you with integrity. My faith in you does not totter. It doesn't wobble. I stand strong in my trust in you. Is David claiming sinless perfection? We know better. Of course not. He stands firmly with God. That's the point. If we could say it kind of in the crass way, I'm on his team. I wear his colors. I'm with the Lord. His faith in the Lord is rock solid. And so is his life orientation to one of obedience to the Lord, which is why he says, test me, try me, know my heart. Literally, test my kidneys and my heart. David prays literally and earnestly. That these, are, these were symbols of the deepest recesses of his soul. Unlike our world where we think meat comes from the grocery store, uh, we, they knew where it came from. And they had seen the innards of animals, all of them, quite often. And they knew the heart and the kidneys were deep within the cavity, deep within the body. And so it just served as a figure of speech to say, know me to the core of my being. Know me to the depths of my soul. Test the loyalty of my heart for you. Time out. Doesn't that seem awfully bold? Wow. Maybe even proud. A bit self-justifying. Here I am, Lord, know my heart, know everything about me, and vindicate me. Should we not tremble to pray that God would prove and try and test our souls? Oh, there's a beautiful, beautiful thing that happens here. In verse 3, everything gets put into perspective. How does David prove his integrity? What evidence does he supply to defend his unwavering faith, to defend his right standing with God? His answer sounds, and will sound, I think, irrational to those who rely on their good works to satisfy God. Those who see themselves as pleasing God in their own efforts are going to be confused. By what happens next. At this point, they're tracking. Yes, know me. I stand right before God as well. I'm better than most people. I'm a pretty good individual. Is that what David's saying? Notice the words of sweet music that follow in verse 3. What is the proof of David's right standing with God? Look at this. Verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. I walk in your faithfulness natural religion religion from below says this i'm justified because i'm good god will declare me righteous because of me and my actions my works but true religion the religion that is from above says this i am justified because god is steadfastly loving and faithful to me what is the proof of David's pure heart? He tests God's steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love. He tests 
he trusts in God's faithfulness to him. That is the proof of David's faithfulness to God. I trust in your steadfast love. It's a beautiful line, and it makes perfect sense when we understand the grace of God. This, friends, is the only way anyone will ever stand before God and live to tell about it. To praise His steadfast love to us. The Bible teaches that each of us has an appointment with death. That the wages of sin is death, and that death will conquer each of us. And the Bible teaches that after we die, we will stand before God to give account of our lives. Now somebody might say here, perhaps it's gone through your mind already, you can't prove that. You cannot prove that when we die, we stand before God to give account. That's true. We can't prove it scientifically. But what we can say is that this book declares it, and this book is filled with prophecies, and every one of them has come true. Through the centuries of time, not one prophecy has slipped. There's only two kinds of prophecies in the Scripture, those that have been announced and fulfilled and those that have been announced. It doesn't take rocket science to figure out the math. It's just wait. Every prophecy of this book has come true to specifics so far that people are named hundreds of years before they're born. Small little villages are identified by name centuries, generations before the prophecy. And this word says that we will stand before him in eternity. We cannot prove that. People don't send letters back to explain what their experience has been. But if our loved ones sent a letter back and said, be ready, you're going to stand before God, what better would that letter be than this one? God says we will stand before him as judge and there, according to Romans 14, 12, you will stand before the bar of God to give an account of your life. The New Testament fills out in fine detail what verse 3 reveals about that day of reckoning. It is not going to be, you should not be preparing to stand before the Lord in self-defensive trust in how good you were in life. What you should be doing to prepare for that day is to live in devoted trust and confidence in what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's amazing how straightforward and simple that is, biblically speaking, and when we compare it with how hard it is for so many to grasp. In fact, by nature, we don't grasp this. I'm going to stand before the judge. I better be a good person. I'm going to stand before the judge. I need to amass all the things that I've done that will please the judge. But God's Word counsels us. We will stand before God, and on that day, what is going to matter above all else is not what you have done, but what Jesus has done. David, in a sense, far before the cross of Christ, far before we could understand this in fullness, says, it is your steadfast love, it is your faithfulness, that is my security and my standing with you.
So how are you going to enter eternity? That's the question. I want to ask you pointedly something you're not hearing from this world, but I'm going to ask you pointedly, really? Are you going to stand before the sovereign, perfect, sinless, holy Lord of heaven and earth and open your mouth to defend yourself as good and righteous and pure? Really? Is that how you want to enter in before his throne? But the good news is your only hope is to throw yourself in dependence upon his provision for you. And that's the beauty of the salvation of which we've sung today. That God sending his son, his eternal son, in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, living in perfect fulfillment of the law, dying as a sacrificial lamb in the place of sinners, rising from the dead, and purchasing our salvation for us. The beauty is we enter into God's presence to give an account, and the account has everything to do with Christ. Not with you, not with me, and our paltry good works, but with the saving grace of Jesus Christ in our behalf. That is our plea. That is our hope. What beauty to see it here in subtle form. So David's example to us is to say before the throne of God, I stand with you because you have been steadfastly loyal to me. It is your work It is your person that is my salvation. Now, standing solidly with God means of necessity that you will position yourself against others. There is no way around this. You cannot stand with God and with His enemies at the same time. You must choose whose side you are on. And here we see again that second prop as David puts it, as we could look at it this way in David's life, there is a disassociation from godless people. The solid standing before God, vindicated before Him because of His relationship with the Lord, leads to a disassociation from godless people. Notice verse 4. I do not sit with men of falsehood. I do not consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now notice the words here, sit, consort, and sit again in verse 5. David contends with God that he does not associate comfortably with godless people. There are people in this world who are loyal to the Lord, and there are people in this world who are not loyal to the Lord. David's loyalty to the Lord meant that David refused to enter into close fellowship with those who did not love the Lord. Now, here we got a little bit of a problem again, don't we? I mean, aren't, didn't Jesus teach us we're supposed to love sinners? Wasn't he a friend of sinners? Aren't we supposed to love the lost and proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and relate to them like Jesus did, even having meals with them? Well, obviously, verses 4 and 5 are no rejection of evangelism. There are no indictment of Jesus for befriending sinners, certainly. The issue is what kind of friend are you? 
if you are the sort of friend who says, I love you enough to tell you that you must repent of your sin and follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, then such friendship honors God. And it doesn't mean that the conversation has to go there all the time. But when Jesus was eating with sinners, he was not suggesting to them that their life was fine as it was. He was there among them saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pass the olives. That's what he was doing. But if you are the sort of friend who befriends sinners by joining in their sin, you reveal a hypocritical heart. Think of the folly of this. It's why we, one reason, a small reason, but one reason we gather together to lay these ideas out and to think about them together as God's people and to think of how silly they sound. I want to go to heaven and commune forever with Christ, but while I'm down here, I mostly enjoy time with godless friends. I want to live forever in the presence of Christ, but I want to be popular down here with those who reject His Lordship and do not seek His salvation. It just sounds silly, doesn't it? But we're bent that way. We're drawn that way. And some perhaps more than others. And maybe there's a real battle going on in your heart right now of spiritual camaraderie with those that are against the Lord. David is not saying, I despise all unbelievers. Evangelism is evil. Jesus is going to blow it when he gets on the scene here and be unfaithful. Of course not. What he is drawing attention to here in this place is when you stand with Christ, you have to recognize there's people who don't stand with you. This is one reason that we encourage those who are pursuing baptism that are young. Have they come to the place where they recognize following Jesus is not popular? That following Jesus means you will be despised by most people at least rejected, not received in fellowship with most people. We want our young people to understand this and to perceive this as they come to follow Christ. He is not going to lead you into popularity. That's all that David is saying in some level. When you relate to the lost, are they teaching you to swear, to blaspheme, to lust for the allures of this world? Or are you influencing them to seek God? That's the question. David's solid stand with the Lord was evidenced by his disassociation and fellowship with those who love falsehood and conduct that violated God's law. He, would, he could be with them. And as we come to his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he could certainly be with them. He could point them to what was right. He could respect them as individuals. He could eat in their home. He could commune with them and talk with them. But he was always pointing them to the necessity to stand with God. To stand with his Father. Now at this point in the psalm, David's prayer draws purposeful linkage between the idea of assembling with the wicked and assembling then with the righteous. Standing with God disassociates us on the deepest level with the ungodly, and it positions us with the godly to do what? 
to worship the Lord. Obviously, to walk in communion and a thousand other things we could say, but here in this psalm, the emphasis falls on a zeal for corporate worship. I stand with God, which disassociates me with those who despise God and reject Him, but I have also then with that, very logically, a zeal for corporate worship. Verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence. I think probably a figure of speech. But he just speaks of a pure heart, of a seeking of God. As I was singing in some of these songs sung here this morning, there were prayers of confession that were lifting from my spirit today as I confessed sin before the Lord as I'm worshiping Him. That, I think, is in part what David's saying here. I wash my hands in innocence. I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. The scene shifts now to the tabernacle. Outside the tent was the brazen altar on which sacrifices were offered to pay the necessary price of the sinner's entrance into the presence of God. I rejoice in the presence of that altar. I mean, this was a somber place. These innocent lambs are slaughtered in graphic reminder of the wages of sin, which is death. But this was also a joyful place for David, a place of thanksgiving and proclaiming God's awesome deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness. So at the tabernacle, there is here in this place a sacrifice for sin. The death of an animal there being consumed by the fire on the altar. And there is here, secondly, a celebration of salvation history. And when your heart is alive in God, such gatherings are a delight to the soul. To know there is a sacrifice for sin. To know there is a God who loves us, whom we can sing and rejoice in His presence. So David explodes here at the height of this prayerful song in verse 8. Here is its pinnacle when he prays, O Lord, verse 8, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. God's glory, the literal brilliant light of His objectified presence dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant within the innermost sanctum of the tent. This was the place of God's presence and David's heart was drawn there because of it. Here, sins were atoned for. Here, songs of praise were sung by God's people. But here, above all, the glorious presence of God dwelt with and among His people. There's no greater spot on earth, says David. I love the habitation of your house. I love the fact that God's glory dwells here. Oh, born-again brothers and sisters, do we begin to perceive what our gatherings mean under the new covenant? This under the old covenant. Think of where we are on this side of the cross. The Apostle Paul brings this out so well in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles who were once separated from Israel, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The dwelling place of God is with His people. It is with His church, the body of Christ. It is us as the building where the glory now resides. Through the indwelling Spirit of God, there is no tabernacle here on earth. There is no temple here on earth. The glory left In the book of Ezekiel, it will return in the person of Christ, but it is present today in the hearts and souls of the people of God. We are that living temple. And so it is not an accident. I don't think the linkage is just accidental, just luck. Notice where Ephesians goes with that theme. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with with the Spirit, be filled with the glory of God. As the household of God, as the body of Christ, be filled with the glory of God's Spirit. What are you going to do? Walk around the altar singing songs of praise, says David. What does Paul say on that, this side of the cross? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where the Spirit of God dwells, where the glory of God inhabits His people, their praises rise as sacrifice to the glory of God, to the joy of His people. Eden Baptist Church, let's think of it. May God by His grace, so conform our hearts to these truths that when we come together on the Lord's day, our spirit prays similarly with David here in verse 8. I love your household. O God, the body of Christ in which your glory dwells, I long to sing with your people and rejoice in your word as the redeemed of the Lord. He's redeemed us from sin. He's redeemed us from shame. He's given us a life in His name. We gather together as the body of Christ, indwelt by the glory of God, by His Spirit, to sing His praises as the new temple. So the Lord's Day gatherings are a way of saying, and I I, I trust that the Spirit can overtake us week in and week out as we gather that when we gather on the Lord's day, we are saying, here I stand with Christ. Here I stand with His redeemed body. I gather here not out of obligation. I gather here not out of ritual. I do not gather here to earn something for my final destiny before God. I gather here to say, I stand with Christ. I am one of His people. I am of His redeemed body. For those who cannot say that as you come, we welcome you. We encourage you to continue to come. We encourage you to know why we are here and to know the joy of our heart to stand with Christ. And we invite you to stand with us. We didn't purchase this. We don't deserve it. It's His grace, purely and holy, that brings us into the light of this reality that we are the body of Christ. We are the temple of God. That His Spirit dwells here and we rejoice in it. We invite you. 
to join us in that. It's not our ability to draw you in, but as Christ would show you His saving grace, He will bring you in to the body of Christ to sing and rejoice and stand with Him. That's why I'm here today. Is that why you're here? I trust it is, or that it will become that. Now at verse 9, in the arrangement of this psalm, we find some repetition. This is very common in Hebrew thinking and arrangement. We see now a connection, something that he said already. There's nothing really new here, but notice how verses 9 and 10 link with verses 4 and 5. We have here, again, an, an emphasis on a disassociation from godless people. So if the pinnacle is verse 8, I love your house where your glory dwells, He says, verse 9, Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. He speaks of sinners against God's law, of bloodthirsty men, people willing to harm others to get their way. He speaks of people with evil intentions who are willing to scheme for their own good. People in love with money, to say it another way, they don't stand on the solid ground with God. And the language David uses here is that God is going to sweep them away like we wipe down a dirty table, putting all the crumbs in our hand. He's saying, don't sweep me away with them. I don't want to be in that, wiped off into judgment, into the hand of God and discarded into a eternity apart from him. Don't sweep me away like that, David pleads. David has not gathered with them in their sinful ways, and he prays that God will not gather him with them in judgment. He knows, David understands, that the gravest of all dangers, the most horrific of all tragedies, is to enter into a state of eternal separation from God. And so David says, as he keeps pleading his case, Lord, I'm not with them. I'm not with them. I don't stand with them. Returning to the theme with which he started then, completing the structure of his prayer. In contrast to those who reject God, David asserts once again as he closes out the song, linking 11 and 12 with 1 through 3, we see his solid standing before God reiterated here. But as for me, verse 11, I shall walk in my integrity. Notice verse 1, I have walked in my integrity. Verse 11, I will walk. I've done it by your grace, I'll continue to do it. And in verse 3, David is not leaning on his own worthiness or righteousness. As verse 11 continues, redeem me and be gracious to me. I need your salvation, I need your grace. I'm not standing here announcing how wonderful I am on my own. I need you. I need your grace. I need your redemption. He's very aware that only God's redeeming rescue and gracious love can save him. But having said that, verse 12, my foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. If verse 8 is the pinnacle of the psalm, verse 12, what a flourish in the ending. What beauty is here. I stand solid. This is a solid man. 
His feet are firmly planted on the solid rock of God, His Redeemer. They are planted in firm faith upon God's promises. So David sings as we do, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. David recognizes how much more should we on this side of the cross that the singing and confessing and prayers of God's gathered people serve as a testament to his saving power in this waking world. I gather with the great assembly as I bless the Lord. Let us not then forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The assembling of ourselves together is not a way of voting for us of voting for the church. It's not a popularity contest for anybody involved in leadership of the worship. We gather to say that I stand with Christ. Let us gather then, not with dull spirits that merely fulfill an obligation, but may God take these words and sanctify us that we would gather knowing that our voices bear witness to Christ's conquest. That while a world out there ignores us and howls against what we believe, we gather here to sing the praises of the Lord with joyful heart, knowing of His rescue and knowing that when we stand with Him, we do so as the redeemed body of Jesus. So let us sing then in earnest with Asaph. As we gather here on the Lord's day, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. We walk through those doors on a physical level. All we're doing is entering a building and sitting down and standing and singing and just doing what we do together. But on an eternal level, on a level that the angels witness and God himself sees, we gather saying, I stand with him. I have been redeemed by Christ and I sing about it. So the question very clearly for David, he's not hiding in the shadows. This isn't a kind of play where he pokes out from behind the stage props. They're there, but this is a poem It is a prayer where David stands on the front of the platform and announces, I want the world to know I stand with Jesus. I want there to be no confusion where my loyalty lies. Is that you? Is that where you stand with Christ? Does that stand then distinguish you from people who live their lives on the sinking sands of this world and its temptations and its deathly delights? I know where you're at if that is a struggle for you. I've been there. I still struggle with the temptation, but there was a time in my life where that's where my life was. I would live around people who did not know I was a Christian. They didn't know of my loyalty to Christ because I didn't speak of it and I didn't live distinctly enough for them to catch that something was weird about me. If that's where you are, I get it. We get it as a church. We understand there is a strong temptation to align with a godless world. 
But if that's where you are, let me say to you, you can't not stay there. You cannot stay there. You have to identify. And by being there in that spot, you're really in a very dangerous place. Because it is not evident by the direction of your life which camp you're in. And it's not my design to force you into one or the other. It is simply the way that the Scriptures unfold. There is light and there is darkness. There are God's people and there are those who are in rejection of Him. There are two ways, a broad road and a narrow road. And you've got to choose. I thank God by His grace alone that I had a foot planted in both places and both places kept moving further apart from each other and I just about ripped in half. But I thank God for His mercy where I came one day to say, I have to decide. I've got to stand with God's people. I've got to stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will mean you're not popular because we can't be popular in two places, in this life and the next. We can't be received by the Lord when we're received by the world. He has told us this again and again in His Word. So I might get where you are, but you can't stay there. You've got to decide. Stand with Christ. It will mean a disassociation with people, with ideas, with this world. Let me ask then, do you find your home with God's people, rejoicing to announce Christ's glories in worship with Him? This psalm presses us to ask, am I drawing nearer to Christ? Am I drawn to His light? Do I welcome, in fact, the searching exposure of my heart? Am I moving closer and closer to that where I want Him to know me? It's not comfortable. It leads to painful confession of sin and repentance. But I say I want that because that light is warm, it is revealing, it is a source of joy. I pray that's where you are. May God bring us there as a church. Or am I drawing away, scurrying from the light as a hypocrite, tentative around God's people, dull to the praises of the Lord? Or perhaps you sense that you are still living in spiritual darkness and you rightly and wisely fear standing before God in eternity. If that is you, please know that today is a day of salvation. Just like yesterday was. Today is as well, right now, by the mercy of God, sustaining, preserving, keeping you, giving you that call, which He alone can enlighten and make happen ultimately. But seek Him, come to Him, embrace Him. He died, Christ died, to pay the penalty of sin. And He rose from the dead to give us life in His name. This is our hope. This is our salvation. Come to it today. Embrace Him today. There was no question where David stood. As we are growing, there should be no question where we stand. And there is a beauty to the life that is lived in this world that says, like the life of Jesus, I respect you, 
I will talk to you. I will treat you like a person. I will not hate you. I will not despise you. But I will love you enough to say, I stand with Jesus. I've been rescued from my sin. He is my Lord, my Savior, my coming King. I'm going to stand before Him and I am ready. Not because of my goodness, but because of His goodness to me in Christ. I stand with Jesus. Will you join me? Will you come with me and stand with this great Savior? I pray that we will all be in that spot with everyone we meet. Not hiding out in the shadows, failing to identify, failing to fight sin and identify with Christ. May he bring all of us there. Where are you? Where are you? Keep journeying into the light by his grace. Let's pray.